It's a phenomenal job. In Sean's words, I, I am actually an emotionally stable person, but I don't know what's going on this morning. So. <laughs> For most of us in this room, we have received the mercy of God. For most of us in this room, we have encountered what it means to be loved by Him. Paul tells the Ephesian church, God is so rich in mercy. And He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Why? So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that He has done for us with Christ Jesus. God saved you by His grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward. God saved you when you believed and you can't take credit for this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things He planned for us to do long ago. And Nehemiah is a doing book. And as it happens, we have kind of brought the whole idea of the name of Mercy Commons together with Nehemiah. And the question we're asking today is what are the good things He has planned for us? We're building a colony of heaven on earth. You've heard me speak about this as we went through Matthew. A colony of heaven um, on earth. We're building a church, a community, a commons. We are not building an exclusive, separate, gated community. There is a, a difference between being a distinct people and being a separate people. We're also not building some kind of a shared workspace uh, where it's a nice place for people to come, but everyone's working on their own thing, working in their own hours, doing their own business. Uh, we are building the only thing that Jesus is building, which is His church. We are joining Him as He builds it. So as Eugene Peterson says, thank you for the intro, Sean, why the church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. Church is an appointed gathering of named people, which is why we did what we did this morning. This is not some faceless mass. Uh, we don't just come together like you do in a movie and uh, gather and watch the same thing and then leave. Church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world where death gets all the biggest headlines. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resur resurrection life. Life out of death. Life that triumphs death. Life that has the last word. Jesus' life. Church is us. We are it. It is through us that the tangible presence of God, the experience of the kingdom of God, will be made known. 
It is through us that Jesus is glorified, worshipped, obeyed, and loved. We are a people who have been set free from sin and want to see others set free from sin, given purpose and meaning in the context of a covenant community. We are not here to taste sermons. We are not here to sip worship expressions and to see if this idea of boutique church serves me. We are not consumers of spiritual products. We are contributors of a kingdom that is coming and has already come. We are Mercy Commons. I want to thank each and every person that has made this possible, even this morning as we arrived, uh, 7 o'clock this morning, for five years. People have been setting up and tearing down. There are people in kids' ministry that were desperate to be part here but are serving and discipling our children. Um, I want to thank everyone because as I speak this morning, it's not out of a desire to want to stir something that doesn't exist in the context of community. It's out of a desire to say thank you for not being consumers of spiritual products. Thank you for being contributors and engaged, sacrificial kingdom contributors. What are we helping to build? We're helping to build a place where people can receive the mercy of God, where people can find their place, and where few people can find their purpose. And all of these elements are present in this chapter in Nehemiah. And I want you to pay attention as we go through the beginning of chapter 3, not to the names, because I'm probably going to misspell or misspeak some of them, um, not even necessarily to the detail of what's going on. I want you to pay attention to the identifiers that are used here. In other words, what kind of people Nehemiah is calling. Uh, most of us, when we read through this chapter, I get it. It's a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce and people build something. Um, but as we go through um, what, what is happening in Nehemiah, as he's gathered the people, the Israelites, and saying, God has called us to build this. Let's rise up and build we join in chapter 3. Then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up. It's not going to be on there if you want to follow in your Bibles. I'm just going to show you what's going on in the, in the context of the walls there. Thanks, Grace. Then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built and next to them Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Mezhazabel, repaired. Next to them Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Meronothite and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to him Rephaniah the son of Hur, who was a ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpa, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshbaniah, repaired. Malkajiah, the son of Harum. Hashub, the son of Paeth Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. 
Next to him, Shalem, the son of Hashalith, who was a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters repaired. Hanan, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate, and they rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And they repaired a thousand cubits as far as the dung or rubbish gate. What does this all mean? And thank goodness that that is over. What does it mean for us? We ask the question, how do you join Jesus as he builds? We join Jesus as he builds in four ways that I'm going to go through this morning. We join him in the sense that everyone does something. We join him in the sense that we build where we live, we build where we work, and we build together. Everyone does something, even if it's unfamiliar. Did you notice how many different kinds of roles and skill sets there were? Priests, leaders, governors, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, traders, rich, poor. It didn't matter. Just saying, how many of you would want a perfumer working on a wall? Right? What does a perfumer do? They work with little details. You know, a little bit of this smell, a little bit of that. Ah, oh, look at the aroma. Karen and I got stuck in a vortex of a conversation when we went to Laguna Beach. Um, at a perfume shop where I'm sure the guy had been smelling his stuff too long. And he talked, I kid you not, this is not exaggeration, for 15 minutes without taking a breath on perfume. I would not want him anywhere near a wall. Okay? What about a jeweler? You know what jewelers do? They work with tiny little intricate things. It's their fingers they do their work, not their hands or their shoulders or their arms. But we have goldsmiths, we have perfumers, we have priests, we have daughters, we have rich and poor. And how many of you, if you were a perfumer or if you were a goldsmith, would feel that you are exempt from working on the wall? This is not my thing. I, I, this is what I do. I make smells. This is what I do. I make pretty things, you know? No, we need you. Right now, there is a need. And what we've always said in the context of community we serve where there is a need, not a niche. And ultimately, the call from Nehemiah is to all of these people. Where there is a need, everyone helps. It doesn't matter if your training or your calling or desire doesn't match it. If it's necessary as the people of God, we give ourselves to that. Now, why is this hard for us to do? Why do we reject this idea? It's not predominantly because we're lazy and we don't like hard work. It could be part of that. Let's be honest, that could be part of the reason why we reject, that uh, uh, we don't want to do things that aren't in our wheelhouse. That could be part of it. But I think part of it is we're trying to solve our insecurity by functional specialization. We're trying to give meaning to our lives by saying, I am a goldsmith. That's what I do. If you're asking me to build a wall, then I don't know what I am. And I don't know who I am. Am I a goldsmith? Am I a wall builder? Am I a gold wall builder? What, what, what am I? Over-specialization is our attempt to control our lives. And we think by refusing to do menial things or serve one another, it elevates our value. Well, we have an amazing example that shows the opposite. We have the example of Jesus that said he came not to be served, but to serve. There is no greater expression of humanity than Jesus Christ, who himself defined himself as someone who came to serve. Beware, because if function is the bedrock of your identity, 
you're building on shifting sand. If what you do is the foundation of who you are, not if that changes, but when that changes, you are going to be very unstable. So if you gain meaning from function, be careful. What Nehemiah is calling all of them is that even if work is unfamiliar, let's give ourselves to that. Even if work is unpleasant, let's give ourselves to that. Verse 14, it says, Malchiah, the son of Rechab, who is he? The ruler of the district of Ben-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. You guys know what dung is, right? I'm not going to say the word, but you know what dung is, okay? Trash, heap, stuff that people throw out. That's what the dung gate is. Who did this? The ruler of the district. Not the poorest people. Not we couldn't get anyone else to do the dung gate, so we left it for a while. No, the ruler of the district repaired the dung gate. It goes into history that you were the guy that worked on the dung gate. How many of you would be, hey, what do you do? I work on the dung gate. Oh, I work on the fountain gate. <laughs> I work on the sheep gate. You work on the dung gate. About a year ago, a friend of mine, an elder at a church went to an uh, orphanage in Mexico, not Rancho Hermosa, but an, an orphanage for, um, for people with developmental disabilities. And, um, and they asked for uh, different volunteers, and, and some guys would, would be painting, doing a building, and some guys would be dealing uh, with, the, um, with, with some of the people that the, the orphanage was serving. And, um, and so he didn't really know what that me meant, but it actually meant that he was going to have to change someone's adult diaper. Now, this is an adult. This is someone who's 17, 18 years old. And uh, they walk in there, and, uh, and he's ready, and he's saying, Oh, God, help me. And, um, and as he's about to do this, someone comes in and he says, uh, We need uh, more volunteers for painting the wall. And before he could say, me, his friend says, I got it, and ran out of the room. <laughs> ran out of the room. He, to this day, has not forgotten it. And he said, Nick, it is probably one of the most disgusting things I've ever done in my life. I used the whole bottle of wet wipes. But it is also the one time where I felt like God was teaching me a lesson I will never forget. And he, he was a, a pastor in the church working on the Dungate. And sometimes when things are unpleasant or unfamiliar, God does his deepest work in us. You know, Nehemiah is, it, it's, it's an example of how good leaders operate and how bad leaders operate. And in this area, when, when work gets unpleasant, we see how other leaders operated in verse 5. In Nehemiah 3 verse 5, it says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but the nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Another translation puts it, they did not put their shoulders to the work. Because leadership is much maligned, one of the things that we need in the context of our community is good examples. And I believe we have that. And Neil doesn't serve on logistics because he can lift the most. Well, he can. But, but that's not why... He serves on logistics. 
He also doesn't serve on logistics because we feel like he needs humility. He serves on logistics because he... Uh, do we? A little more, Jacqueline? Okay. Jacqueline's like, well, maybe, you know. All of our leaders in this community serve in some capacity. Why? Because we see it in Scripture. It's not only designed to be able to create a glue within this community. We need to, as leaders, do that. We need to serve in ways that are unfamiliar to our giftings and that are sometimes unpleasant. Make sense? We build where we work. Nehemiah 3 verse 1 says this, Eliashab the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Well, what does that even mean? The sheep gate was near the temple. And in those days, if you were an Israelite, if you wanted to offer sacrifices, you needed sheep. And the sheep would come in through that gate to... That was their last stop, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, vegans among you, but they didn't eat it. They just sacrificed it. So I don't know. Does that make you feel better? Doesn't make me feel better. Um, right. Um, my wife is like, just move on. You know, just, just keep going. Yeah, you build where you work. Do you see the place at which you work as an opportunity to bring the mercy of God? Do you see the place at which you work an opportunity to bring order out of chaos? Or do you see it as something that you've just got to grit your teeth through so that you can do what it is that you've been called to do? Can, can I tell you something? If you're working at ABC Restaurant right now, that's what you're called to do. Whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Does that mean that you shouldn't strive to be outside of ABC Restaurant? No. But what it means is, as we adjust our attitudes and we understand that God is calling us to build, we build where we work. And Jesus has given us a new identity, which means in the context of work, we can't be deceived. Because we have an identity as sons and daughters, we are able to reject the fact that I am what I do. Jesus has given us a new concept of the dignity of all work, which means that helps us with our boredom at work. Everything is meaningful. In some way, you are doing what God told Adam and Eve to do, which is to bring order out of chaos. In some way. This, doesn't even, this isn't just um, official jobs. Parents, you are bringing dignity, and trust me when I say this, you are bringing order out of chaos. If there was ever anything true about bringing order out of chaos, it is a parent's job. Every time you discipline, every time you talk, every time you teach, you are building something. And Jesus has given us a new moral compass that ensures that our work will not corrupt us. Uh, that as the world tries to squeeze us into, into this mold, we cry out to God not to be squeezed into that mold, but to be an example of what it means to live like a Christ follower. And he's given us a new worldview, which means that work does not become our master because he is our master. That work actually becomes our servant. That we use work to be able to accomplish the purposes of God. Now, let me be clear on this. This is both the quality of your character and the quality of your work. You will not be able to build something of significance that brings glory to God if the quality of your work 
does not match your Christian witness. In fact, if the quality of your work is low, it, does, it isn't a good Christian witness. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have examples uh, of men and women that were, um, were elevated, not because of their Christian witness, but because of their effective work. Uh, uh, Daniel, Joseph, Nehemiah are examples of men that were said, man, you, what you do, you do really well. And so let's promote you. And through that, the purposes of God are achieved. Our work is part of our building. It's not an interruption in terms of what God is building. We build where we live. Nehemiah 3.10 and 23 says, Next to them, Jediah the son of Haram repaired opposite his house. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his house. This is genius. If you want people to invest in building this wall, give them the five-finger principle. What's in it for me? If, is this your house? Repair this part of the wall. Oh, I'll do that. I'll do that because it actually directly affects me. Now, I don't know if that's the reason why Nehemiah did that. I don't know if that's the reason why those guys were working on that part of the wall. But let me say this, and this is a quote um, from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Nice German name. Where are the walking teens? I don't even know if I said that properly. It says, let everyone, sweep in the, uh, let everyone sweep the front of his own house, then the whole world will be clean. If everyone sweeps the front of his house, the whole world will be clean. We need to build where we live, our homes, our neighborhoods. Now, I'm not talking about the pressure to make sure that your house looks good. How many of you, um, I think the Williams, right, have, have a house like this where everyone goes crazy for Halloween and you feel like, sheesh, are we even doing enough? Like, you know, I, I, when I joined this neighborhood, I didn't know that I would have to spend 10 grand on Halloween lights and <laughs> Christmas lights and, you know. Uh, let, let me just say this. If you're going to build at home, can you just make sure that your house is not the worst one in the neighborhood? We don't need to aim for the, like, the top one, but just make sure it's not the house that everyone just points at or like, does this as, as they walk past. That, that's part of what it means to, to build at home, being a, a good neighbor. Two weeks ago, someone on our street, and I'm pretty sure I know who it is, started a parking war. Right? You know what they did? They called the cops. They didn't talk to us. And I mean, we, we're, we're a tight neighborhood. I mean, Karen and I, we engage with our neighbors. We're friends with, with our neighbors. And on Sunday morning, everyone on the street got a parking ticket. They haven't ticketed us in three years. But someone called because someone parked a truck in front of my house. They asked me permission to park that truck in front of my house. Some neighbor got offended. Instead of talking to that person, called the cops, and now we all have to pay for it. Don't be that neighbor. Don't be that neighbor. Yeah. I, know. I got that off my chest. I feel better now. You know, sometimes when you're trying to be a good neighbor, things don't work your way. About two years ago, those of you that have been in my backyard will know that we don't have any trees in our backyard, but we have a lot of trees in our neighbor's yard. And so what I was doing is, let's just say this is the fence line. I was up on the fence and I, I was just cutting the branches that were hanging over 
my fence line. Um, and um, I actually have this on video. I thought about showing it, but there's too many bad words in it. Um, <laughs> there is this very, very old lady that lives directly opposite us. And, um, and, and Karen talks to her. And, um, <laughs> and I'm up on the fence, and Fallon and Aaron are with me, and I'm just using the sawzall to cut these things. And she says, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just cutting the branches that are falling. You're cutting my tree! I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that, but I'm only cutting, you know, where it is. And then the expletives started flowing. I mean, it's one thing to hear bad language, but to hear bad language from someone that's in their 90s, it's kind of like, what is, what is going on here? The bad language faded, and then I thought it was over, and then all of a sudden, I get drenched. She's standing with a water hose. Get down! Stop cutting my trees! Um, uh, Aaron and Fallon learned six new words that day. Sometimes, even when you're trying to be a good neighbor, things work against you. But I did send the peacemaker. So, that's right. Your, your front yard is technically private property. Right? Technically, your front yard is but it actually is publicly accessed land. How do I know that? Because dogs poop on your front lawn, right? It's, it's publicly accessed land. One of the things that we need to do as we build better communities is to reclaim our front yard spaces. And that means common spaces as well. Now, the guys at Hillcrest have done a great job of that. Is instead of spending most of our time in our backyard, to actually step out into our front yard and say, I'm here. Now, I mean... It's kind of weird for most of the younger people here that are under 20 or, you know, between 25 and, and under. You know, front porches are not just a decoration. Front, people used to sit in their front porches and they used to talk to people going by. And, and so one of the things that we used to do, which we actually need to recapture in summer, is, is to do what we do in the backyard in the front yard to play games, to do a barbecue. To, that way you are actually more visible to your neighbors. I want to challenge you with one question, just in terms of how we build a, a church that exists for the glory of God and the joy of the city. Right now, I want you to slow down and I want you to think, do I know the names of my neighbors to the left, to the right, to the front, and the two sides? In other words, one, two, three, four, five. Just their names. Do I know that? It's hard, right? There's a solution for that. It's, it's very, you, do you know what that is? To meet them, right? You know how that'll rock their world? You, you know, you may have been there for years. Let me tell you what an amazing opportunity it is. Because we had to do this. Because we'd been there for a number of years knock on the door and say, hey, we've said hi, my name is Nick, hi, my name is Daniel, uh, we have not been great neighbors, I'm so sorry, I would love to change that. That person is going to be thinking about that statement 
for a long time. And it's not going it's, to, it, it's going to shift the way they think. When our next door neighbors moved in, I'm not going to tell you which side, but when one of our next door neighbors moved in, uh, Karen made some banana bread or cookies or something. She made something. And Erin and I went to go take it over. And she opened the door like this. She grabbed the banana bread. She pulled it in. She said, thank you. And she closed the door. Now, Karen looks after her kids. She's actually dueled her children. We um, enjoy parties together. It's a different situation. Why? Because we said, we can't live like this. This doesn't make sense. This, this, this is countercultural living. It's this simple to live counterculturally, to actually desire to get to know your neighbors. We're sitting, uh, I was, every time I'm in the front yard, I'm actually saying to God, okay, I'm looking around. Am I going to see any of my neighbors? And am I going to be, be able to engage any of my neighbors? Um, and one of our neighbors came and I'm, I asked her how things were going, what was happening. She's like, man, I'm super nervous. I have this interview. I don't know what to do. I'm like, can I pray for you right now? I just pray for her that she wouldn't be anxious in her interview. It's not hard to just be a person that wants to engage other people and live your life in the way you would normally live your life. It's not that difficult. For me, it's hard sometimes. I come home, you know that I'm the only male in my house, which is why we got a male dog, okay? Because when Fred ran away, who I'm still not convinced was a male, I know why he ran away, you know? Fred was, Fred was a turtle, not a child, just in case you're wondering, okay? I, I come home, and, and there are a bunch of water polo girls in my house. And the first thing I think when I walk in is like, awesome. The next thing I think of is, awesome. You know what, it, it does take a little bit for me to get used to, but the fact that people, these kids, uh, are in our home and they feel comfortable enough to be in our home, I forget that there's a privilege for that. I also forget how few of them actually have families that are connected. There's the one girl, it's late at night, it's like 7.30, it's, it's winter, so it's, it's dark, and she's like, I'm going. I'm like, where are you going? She's like, I'm going home. I'm like, how are you going home? I'm like, I'll walk. Like, does anyone know you here? No. I'm like, okay, you won't do that. Um, I'm going to take you home, you know. It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. This is not just about having a family with 2.5 kids. Let me say this. That I've been invited to a commune for dinner once. By, by commune, I mean communal living, single people that live together. You, you do realize that you guys can invite married people to have dinner, right? Married people, you do realize you can invite single people to have dinner with you, right? It's not that hard. Okay, we all got to shift in some way. We build together under leadership is the final point. Man, 13 times. You know, when Scripture says something that often, we should pay attention. Next to Him or next to them. They didn't just randomly build whatever they wanted, however they wanted. And there wasn't a single person that said to Nehemiah, what on earth qualifies a cupbearer to be a project manager? Why should I listen to you? No, there was a sense in which every one of them understood that leadership was necessary and when done well is a gift 
to the community. That's why leading by example is critical. We don't just randomly do whatever we feel like or, or whatever we want to do in that moment. We build in accordance to the pattern most importantly set by Jesus, but ultimately in the context of the community that we're part of. And it's, it's important for two ways. One, because this is how we are able to fulfill what God has called us to when everyone does their part. It doesn't matter how brilliant or tall a wall is, one little gap means that that wall is useless. The reason we do it together is because we get tired. And we get tired in our building. And we need someone else to be able to be next to us, to be able to encourage us in that. We are not just kingdom cogs in a machine. We are sons and daughters of the living God, which is why when we build together, we care for one another as well. And that's why in the context, not only of our life groups, but of our serve teams, there's a sense in which if you really want to engage in a sense of identity that is flowed through from your sonship into purpose and meaning. You'll be able to be discipled in ways that you've never been discipled before as you participate in the call that God has given us. We care for one another when we build together. Team, you can come up. You know, we have a phenomenal model of this. And it's not Nehemiah. It's Jesus Christ. Do you remember the nobles that wouldn't stoop? They wouldn't put their shoulders to the work because I'm a noble? Well, Jesus, who was equal with God, in other words, an equal part of the Trinity, chose to humble himself in the form of a servant. Chose to come and to walk this earth in a human body. Chose to die death upon a cross so that he would ultimately be our sovereign. That's, that's the pattern there. Service, sacrifice, sovereignty. That's what he did. The best servant we will ever know. The most precious sacrifice we will ever know. The greatest king we will ever know. He did not rely on his status. He did not rely on his um, ability to, because he could have just pointed and something would have been done. He modeled what it meant to be a servant. We can't build an environment of mercy if we have not experienced mercy. We can't build an environment of mercy if we aren't living in a state of mercy ourselves. The question this morning, if, if you're a visitor or you're examining the claims of Christ, the, the question that I want to ask you this morning is, have you received the mercies of God? And if you are a Christ follower, is what are you building with the mercies of God? As we end, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, or belonging to him. Why are we that? That, that is precious enough as it is, but why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's live and build like a people that have received mercy.